2: to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of veritas at veritasradio.com i'm your host mal fabregas and i sincerely thank you for joining me once again and if this is your first time or your truth journey brought you here welcome home and to listen to tonight's full interview you know how to do by now give yourself the gift of truth by going to veritasradio.com and clicking on the subscribe button. There you can choose many options from three months all the way to two years. And to get in touch with us for media inquiries, you want to be a guest or are a whistleblower, there's a link for you right on our website at veritasradio.com. I want to hear from you. Our quest for the truth cannot go without a deeper understanding of what we all use for exchange or trade, which is money. Exactly how we define the word money defines our very society and affects nearly every facet of our lives. It also tells us exactly what we can expect from our political representatives. All we need to do is to understand the language of money. What is money? How is it defined? What is the history of money? How does it tie to religion, government, and private business? What is the difference between credit and money? What is fiat money? Is there a difference between private versus nationalized banks and how they operate? And why is any of this important to you? How could it possibly affect your life? You see, a few years ago, I met one of our listeners, Craig McLean. He resided in Costa Rica at the time and flew to Washington State, where I was attending a conference. He gave me a book titled... The Lost Science of Money, The Mythology of Money, The Story of Power, authored by tonight's special guest, Stephen Zerlinga. I want to thank Craig for your gift and for making me aware of Stephen Zerlinga. Stephen Zerlinga is the founder of the American Monetary Institute, which is the leading American monetary think tank for monetary history, theory, and reform. Stephen is one of the best economic historians in the country, if not the best in fact, if not the world. He's an author and provides the clearest picture of how money and monetary systems work in his 2002 book, The Law Science of Money, and also the author of the American Monetary Act, submitted to Congress a few years ago by Congressman Dennis Kucinich. Usually books on economics are pretty dry, but Stephen's book really held my interest throughout its nearly 800 pages of excellent material and research. If you want to have the deepest understanding about the New World Order and how it works and what you can do to stop it, read Mr. Serlinga's book. I cannot emphasize that enough. And to learn more about Stephen Serlinga, visit his website at monetary.org, which is also linked at ours. And directly from Chicago, Illinois, I would like to welcome Stephen Serlinga. Hello, Mr. Serlinga, and welcome to Veritas.
0: Hi, how are you? And uh, thank you for the interview. I'm looking forward to it, Mel. Call me Stephen, and I'll call you Mel. Just for
2: please, uh, definitely call me Mel, please. Thank you, Stephen. Very good. Well, as I was saying before we started the uh, the, the the interview and, and during the intro, it was a, a few years ago a an American living in Costa Rica came to visit uh, Washington. Well, I was attending a conference, and in the rain he handed me this book, this very big book, almost 800 pages long. And I said, you know, well, what? what is this? And he said to me, you must read this book and hopefully you'll have the author on the show. And it took me a few years because I, I have to schedule an interview before I read a book of the caliber of yours. So I'm so glad that you're here discussing you. the mystery because it's almost like a mystery. It's been censored or misinterpreted. It'll First wait. of all, Tell us more about uh, you, Stephen. Give us some background to put things in perspective.
0: Well, sure. Uh, What do you want to know?
2: (laughs) Well, how did you start with all of this?
0: I started with this at about the age of eight or nine. We used to talk about money when we were kids in the neighborhood. You know, Chicago's a city of neighborhoods. And uh, we, somebody at one point, eight or nine years old, that's a long time ago, by the way, they had a dollar bill. And we actually read it, and we're trying to figure it out as kids. You know, why? where did this come from? Why is it money? And uh, we actually asked ourselves these questions, and nobody had any good answers. So it started way back then, and uh, uh, in a, in a way. Now, as the monetary problem developed over time, uh, back from about 1970, I was very involved with gold, and in fact, invented many of the arguments that you hear people telling you today why they should have part of their uh, uh, investments in gold. We we created those arguments. Right there, w- there were none at that point in time, 1970, because it was illegal for Americans to own gold. And they didn't understand it, and it was almost unpatriotic, or it was put forward that way by the Wall Street Gang. We didn't have a full understanding then of how vicious and how bad the Wall Street Gang truly is and the kind of damage that they've done to humanity and, and of course, our country and, well, the whole world. So for a while, uh, we had to create these, Arguments as to why people should have part of their money in gold. Now, gold was at $35 an ounce, okay? <laughs> if you can imagine that. And, and there was one day I was in Switzerland and the price of gold actually went to 40, $34.90 an ounce.
2: But wasn't. Cents, uh, let me interject for one second because you said something interesting. You said that yes. it was illegal to own gold. And I remember, well, I wasn't born, but 1933 when Roosevelt with the Executive Order 6102 criminalized possession of monetary gold by any individual partnership, association, or corporation. Did that continue until the 70s?
0: Yes, it did. But that's not quite what he did. There's a lot of bad propaganda that goes around about what Roosevelt did because the price of gold when Roosevelt did that and was $20.67 an ounce. That's right. And he... The banks were collapsed already. The banks closed. He didn't close the banks. They were already closed, Uh, uh, most of them, many of them. And he had to restructure the monetary system. And part of that restructuring was to artificially, completely by government, say, all right, from now on, value of gold is going to be officially $35 an ounce. Not twenty dollars and sixty-seven cents anymore.
2: So it so continued. He, it continued from nineteen thirty-three to the nineteen seventies at thirty-five dollars, stable.
0: Uh the official price. Yeah, uh, and, and then they raised it to forty-two. I think the uh, official price right now is still forty-two dollars and something per ounce. You know, the the market price is up around twelve hundred. Right. But but uh, so what Roosevelt did was quite reasonable. You see, because he raised the price of gold from 2067 to 35. And the idea was not to raise the value that all of the speculators in gold had. And these were not good people, by the way. These were the the rich of the day, who, like the rich of today, had been the ones who largely caused the trouble. That's almost always the case. As a general rule, that usually works out. So rather than just give them this big increase in in the value of their speculations, and they were speculating in it at that time. He said, no, that belongs to the country it's the country that's raising the price, and that belongs to the country so if you if you have gold, turn it over and turn it over at uh, thirty uh, at the uh, twenty dollar price and uh, one more part of that everyone was allowed to keep. Five ounces of gold, which they never tell you in the propaganda, you know, against Roosevelt. Everyone was allowed to keep more gold than 99.9% of the people could afford. <laughs> so,
2: but the, the 2067 to 35, yeah. let's say you and I owned a bar of gold at the time, and we had to give it to the government, and we'll get it at 2067. Yeah. Wouldn't that immediately give them a profit of 65%?
0: No no you wouldn't have been given any profit why should you you just bought it for 2067 government bought it from you for 2067 you see and and any difference the the new value of gold was used to to prop up a monetary system and a banking system which the bankers just like recently which had been collapsed by the incredible greed and the incredible—I mean, the, the back in the twenties, you had as much of a concentration of wealth, relatively, as you do today. And people today understand that it's not just, it's not fair, it's a bad thing, and it will wreck it will wreck America if it's allowed to continue as it is. They understand that.
2: Is this so, why Fort Knox was created to store all that gold?
0: Uh, no, I think Fort Knox was a fort. <laughs> wasn't that an army fort? Where is Fort well, Knox?
2: Well, true. Right.
0: Kentucky or something? Yes. Yeah. No, I I think they just uh it was a secure place to put the gold or at least that was what they told people and so they used it as a storehouse for gold. Unfortunately, most of the gold was probably already in the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, which is a the most powerful of all the Federal Reserve Banks. It's it's not the system not the Washington system. You've got the Washington system, uh, Federal Reserve system, and then there are the 12 regional Federal Reserve banks. Now, the Washington system is a kind of an agency. It's not owned. There are no shares of it, despite what you hear that the Rothschilds own it. That's all BS. Uh, it, It has no shares. But the 12 regional Federal Reserve banks and there's one in Boston, the most powerful ones in New York. I think there's one in Baltimore. There's one in Chicago, Denver, in the 12 big cities across the country. These are privately owned. And they're owned by the banks within their district. And this brings us to a huge part of our problem, Mel. The banks which control our, our monetary system, they're owned by other, by by private banks. And the problem is that naturally, you would expect them in making their decisions to make all their decisions to help themselves. And that, of course, is exactly what has happened. So they have run the monetary system for their own benefit, not for the nation. And it's worked out quite well from their point of view, They're vastly, you know, they're, they've got tremendous power and money. And it's, it's working out very, very poorly for the American people who are suffering more and more, uh, and, and who at this point in time, we need to make some reforms or we're gonna, we're gonna see even worse problems. Now, during Roosevelt's time, we had the Great Depression, uh, Again, thanks to the misstructured banking system. And that then there 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 was the idea this should be reformed. And Why there were we... a few pardon, go ahead. What? Interrupt me any time because otherwise I could get off too far on a tangent that people <laughs> are really interested in.
2: You know, I remember back in the mid-80s when I was in uh, college, I was taking uh, economics 102, and the economics professor just kept going about banks creating money and we started talking about the Federal Reserve, and I really wanted to get to the bottom of it. And I yeah. was saying, "Who's behind the Federal Reserve?" And yeah. when I told him that the Federal Reserve is not federal and has no reserves, you could tell in his face that I was hacking his paradigm. He could not answer the question, "Why do we have a entity that is not part of our government that is responsible for issuing currency, Stephen?
0: Well, this power was put into the Congress originally in the Constitution. In Article 1, Section 8, Clause or Paragraph 5, the power to coin money is placed directly, explicitly into the Congress. And that's where it belongs. In other words, it's in the hands the power to create money and control our money system. They use the word to coin uh, and regulate the money. That belongs to the people. That's a huge power. And it, it's there in the Constitution, in the hands of the people, through their elected representatives. And that's where it belongs. Unfortunately, in 1913, the bankers... Convinced the Congress, or bribed, or however, if you want all the details, uh, to delegate that power to them, and it's been a disaster ever since. We've had uncountable number of crises since 1913, including two that brought down the whole world: the the Great Depression of the 1930s and the Great Depression of recent years. You know, to call this something else is uh, really uh, strange. Why They, you know, they you. can't admit that they've created a second depression.
2: Thank you. Thank you for calling it what it is. I'm so tired of people calling it a great recession when it's really gotcha. a depression.
0: Yeah, when you look at the figures, there 50 million Americans go to bed hungry every night. Uh, Nine million families have lost their homes. Multiply that by an average four-person's Family, so you got what 36 million who have who've been made homeless. Uh, too much of the power in our country. You see, here there's a very basic, basic rule, and it's the first line on our homepage. And anybody who's listening, they I, I urge them, welcome them to go to our homepages, all kinds of free material there, and it's at monetary.org. You know, all the W's. Monetary, M O N E T A R Y dot org. The very first sentence there under our name is, quote, Whoever controls the money system controls the nation. Actually, it says, over time, whoever controls the money system controls the nation. Not every year, but over time, that's what will happen. And that's.
2: And and I love that you include so much history. In your book, because you go you You've go thousands it. of years ago. You you well, to. first of all, why don't we start by defining money? Please define money.
0: Oh, <laughs> that, that's a tough one, Bill, because I don't define money until page six hundred and fifty something. But you're absolutely right. In order, before you can reform money, you have to know what money is. And in order to know what money is, you have to study the history of it, to look at it historically, not just logically, not just uh, what an economist would say it is, but what it has been throughout the history of, uh, of humanity. And we were very fortunate. I mean, the human race is very fortunate in having a brilliant, brilliant guy a long, long time ago who put forward the actual uh, correct science of money. I call it a science. And his name was Aristotle. And he put it forward accurately, and it's simplified in one sentence from him. And I'll give you that quote. Money exists not by nature, but by law.
2: What do you really mean by that? Does it mean that fiat money has been around for thousands of years?
0: It means exactly that, that fiat money, money is a fiat of the law. Because that's that's what a legal thing is. It's a fiat, or one way of using the word fiat. And what he's saying, what that means is money does not exist by nature. All right, so money what that says is money is not something comes out of a farm or a mine, gold, silver, a farm, barley, whatever. But it's created by, by law. It's It's a creature of the law, and it's within our power to change it. And the word that Aristotle used was not make it worthless, to change it and make it useless.